Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. From the East Coast to the West Coast, units of the National Park System have been reopening in recent days. On Monday, Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks will open, while Great Smoky Mountains National Park opened a week ago, and parts of John Day Fossil Beds National Monument began reopening just this past Friday. During the past week, we passed on news of these steps forward towards fully reopening the National Park System. We also reported on a woman who illegally entered Yellowstone and stumbled into a hot spring and needed to be airlifted to a hospital. And contributing writer Kim O'Connell provided an inviting introduction to what you can find at Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. You can find those and other stories about parks and protected areas on nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I talk with Toby O'Rourke, the president and CEO of Campgrounds of America, about a study KOA commissioned to gauge Americans' interests in returning to campgrounds on and near public lands. The findings, as we reported on The Traveler last week, are quite interesting and point to renewed interest in camping as a recreational pursuit. After my conversation with Ms. O'Rourke, we tempt you to explore the dark side of the national park system. No, not the night skies overhead, but rather the subterranean world of Jewel Cave National Monument and Wind Cave National Park, two parks in South Dakota separated by fewer than 20 miles as the crow flies. It's only been about two months since the coronavirus pandemic has taken control of our lives, but more than a few of us are getting just a bit antsy to get back to some sense of normalcy in our lives. And for the outdoor going public, campers are particularly chomping at the bit to get back out into national parks and other public lands. We know that thanks to a survey Campgrounds of America commissioned to take the pulse of Americans and some Canadians just last month. A key takeaway of the survey is that camping is well positioned to rebound earlier compared to other types of travel once travelers themselves deem it safe to travel again. To dive a bit deeper into the survey, we're joined today by Toby O'Rourke, KOA's president and CEO. Welcome to The Traveler, Toby. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Now, it's easy to understand that longtime campers are eager to get back out to the campgrounds and other places where they can pitch their tents or rent a cabin or park an RV. But what was interesting to me in the survey was the number of non-campers who are starting to look at this recreational pursuit. What do you make of that? Well, you're very excited to see that come back in the report that a third of non-campers are saying they're now interested in camping as a result of the pandemic. I equate that to a couple things. One, uh, the survey also told us that people are just prioritizing the outdoors in general, more so than they did before. I think people have been under stay-at-home orders, they've been in their homes, and they are anxious to get outside. So camping is a great alternative for them looking for a vacation. And and also it comes down to safety. What the biggest thing for me coming out of the report is we asked people to rank different forms of travel in terms of safety and travelers ranked camping as the safest among all other forms of camping. So I think that's also driving these non-campers to be considering it. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's it's been right out there for the taking for forever, just about. And um, now to see this turnaround, um, it's certainly encouraging for the, the outdoor recreation industry in general and camping specifically. Does this represent an opportunity for the camping industry to gain some new followers? I mean, the survey showed that 72% of baby boomers viewed camping as the safest type of travel to embark upon once travel restrictions have lifted, and us boomers aren't getting any younger. We'll need to be replaced sometime, right? That's true. You know, what, what's been, we've been running the North American Camping Report for six years now, and what we've seen year over year is there's more and more people coming into camping. In fact, we estimate that there's been... Um, almost 9 million new campers that have come into camping over the past five, six years. And a lot of that is being driven by the millennial generation, but now we're seeing Gen Z more interested in camping as well. So baby boomers have always been avid campers. And you know, over the past few years, we're seeing the demographic shift younger and younger. So um, I think this survey reinforces that people will continue to come to camping they're viewing it as a, a great activity to experience with their family and friends, allows them to engage with the outdoors. And uh, absolutely, I think we're going to see numbers grow across the board as we come out of this. Now, one thing that the National Park Service has been concerned with somewhat going back to um, 2014, 2015, the lead up to the National Park Service centennial was the um, the makeup of, of park goers. And, and specifically, you know, they, they felt that... Um, some of the minority groups, uh, um, Latinos and the, the Blacks and um, Asian Americans were underrepresented in the park-going public. Do you see um, more and more ethnic diversity, racial diversity in, in the num- number of campers out there? Absolutely. We've seen that increase significantly over the past five years. Um, as it sits right now, a third of campers are from non-white demographics, people of color communities. And if you break it down in just people that camped for the first time last year, 50% of those campers were from people of color communities. So 50, five, zero. Five, zero. So overwhelmingly, we are seeing a shift of more Uh, more people coming into camping from other demographics. And I think that'll spill over to all activities in the outdoors, not just camping. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you get a a feel um, geographically? um, Is this something that's being seen across the country or predominantly in the West, uh, the Intermountain region? Uh, Right. So if you look at that geographically, there's not necessarily a lot of changes. It, It naturally follows the demographics in any particular area about what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of Hispanic campers, for example, in the Southwest and in California. Um, But Mm -hmm. by and large, across the board, we're seeing pretty good representation geographically across the country. Well, that's good. I mean, I I grew up in the East Coast and and, and camping was kind of a foreign thing to me. I mean, I was in the Boy Scouts and whatnot, but um, as a a family vacation, it it wasn't uh, always something my parents chose to do. And of course, um, as I grew older and moved west, I mean, it, it seemed like a, a natural part of life. It is. We do see camping um, predominantly more a part of the lifestyle in the west and in Canada. But I will say some of the largest gains in camping activity over the past four or five years have been in the northeast. Camping is pretty popular around the country. No matter where you go, we see very high numbers of incidents of camping and people that consider themselves active campers. Mm. Now, the survey, I believe it. Uh, 
involved, uh, I think, 4,000 U.S. households and and about 500 Canadian households. Yes, that was our sample size for this COVID split of research that we did. And we, we work hard to make sure that that sample is representative of the demographics of the countries and represents well the population. So it's a a pretty significant sample size. Why did you reach into Canada? We always measure Canada uh, for for a couple of reasons. One of which as Campgrounds of America operates campgrounds in Canada. And so it's very important for us to have a pulse on what's happening with the Canadian camping public as well. And secondly, there's a lot of people that come from Canada to camp in the U.S and vice versa. So if you're talking camping, it makes more sense to talk about it as a U.S. and Canada um, block versus just one country. Something else that caught my eye in this survey was the fact that the coronavirus pandemic and the travel restrictions seem to have reminded many folks that nature is good to visit and explore. Uh, The survey found that 43% of leisure travelers said that spending time outdoors is now more important to them as a result of the pandemic. Is that surprising to you? Uh, No, not necessarily. We definitely see year over year people prioritizing the outdoors uh, and also for their children. You know, people have, that's been an increasing sentiment in North America as people wanting to make sure that they're getting time outside and they're exposing their children to the outdoors. Again, coming off of eight weeks of stay-at-home orders in in many states now, and some of that will extend even farther, getting outside is more important to people than ever. And I think that that's what's coming back to us in the research is that people are anxious to get outside. They they see the health benefits. You know, it's mentally, uh, there's mental benefits, there's physical benefits to being outside. And I think people are realizing that now that we've been in this interesting state that we've been in for the past eight weeks. So um, it's not super surprising to me. And it's very uh, comforting to me because at KOA, we definitely agree that the outdoors has a lot of benefits in people's lives. For sure. You know, in in my community, um, as I'm sure in many parts of the, the country, things have calmed down and there's not as much traffic on the roads. There's not as much congestion in our, in our communities. I'm seeing a lot more people out walking around our neighborhood people that you previously never did see before. And, um, you know, we talk about being inundated with emails and texts and cell phones in our pockets, always ready to ring. And I wonder if the pandemic, as as brutal as it's been to the economy and and certainly to uh, those who have uh, gotten COVID-19, I wonder if it hasn't Caused some of us to to take a look at our priorities in life and and maybe um, look for a little simpler form of uh, pastimes? I think so. I think there's a lot of validity in that. I know that uh, you're spending a lot more time with your family, right? Uh, Your immediate family, and you're maybe realizing what you may have taken for granted with family that you you aren't sheltering with that are farther away. And that's why we're seeing this increase in Zoom calls, right? And and people (laughs) gathering together online. I know I can speak from personal experience. Um, I feel like I'm working now more than I was before because it is so accessible and I'm always on my laptop. And so any chance I have to disconnect is so valuable to me. I'm actually weary by the end of the day from looking at the computer because all of my meetings are online or on the phone. And, and so I, I do treasure those times when I can disconnect. And I would, I would assume that other people are feeling that way as well. And when you can get outside to take a walk or have a break um, and I, in camp, you know, I'm very anxious to get out and camping. We're obviously avid campers, before this, but I could see people who had never camped before thinking that 
this is something I would really like to do, or I would like to go see our state park or our national parks. Um, they're just rethinking ways they spent their time before. We're talking today with Toby O'Rourke, uh, the president and CEO of Campgrounds of America. Um, that organization recently commissioned a survey to, to take the pulse of Americans and some Canadians in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic um, to get a sense of when they're going to go back out camping and how soon they want to get back out camping. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Hey, Toby, um, another interesting aspect of the survey, and you touched on it a little bit, is that um, those who were surveyed want to share the, the nature, the camping experience with their kids. 60% said that they thought it was more important than ever for kids to spend time outdoors. Do you think this could be the beginning of erasing or diminishing the nature deficit disorder that Richard Louv brought to the nation's attention back in 2005? I certainly hope so. I, I'm a firm believer as a mother um, and also working in this industry that it's very important for kids to be outside and being exposed to our parks, being exposed to recreation activities that are outdoors. And so I certainly hope so. I think I, I hope that people are prioritizing engaging their kids in the outdoors. Now, 90% of leisure travelers and 95% of experienced campers who were contacted for the survey said there should be some measures in place to enforce social distancing. 47% of campers and half of leisure travelers agreed that limiting the number of people on a trail is reasonable. Nearly half of prospective campers thought that limiting group sizes would be reasonable, and another 39% said they were okay with requiring face masks in certain areas. I'm guessing there might also be some concerns regarding group bathroom facilities and showers and cafeteria meals. Do you think that we might see a reconfiguration of, of campgrounds, both um, in the KOA world as well as in state parks and, and national parks and U.S. Forest Service lands? I mean, how, how do we implement those safety conditions in the current layout of campgrounds? I absolutely do think there's going to be changes. There has to be. First of all, there's state and local county level regulations being put out for businesses as states reopen. And so we have to keep in mind what those regulations are and make sure we're following those on our campgrounds. And a lot of those come down to group sizes. 
Sometimes bathrooms cannot be open. Sometimes cabin accommodations cannot be open. Pools are closed, playgrounds are closed. So there's a variety of restrictions. We at KOA um, a few weeks ago produced a pretty extensive operations uh, procedures manual for our campgrounds that they can go in and then customize their operations plan. And it takes mm -hmm. into account things like social distancing, PPE usage, cleaning, et cetera, to keep safety in mind for guests and employees. So each of our campgrounds is building out their customized plan based off how they want to operate their park combined with how they're required to operate based off of state regulations. And so you're absolutely going to see campgrounds on the private side operating differently in light of that in this situation. Now that might ease over time. You know, we're encouraging people to evaluate that operations plan at minimum every 30 days or as a new phase is introduced in their state as we go through these phased reopenings. But I do think this will start to bleed over to the public parks as well. I think there's going to probably have to be the same adjustments that, you know, the Department of Interior is looking at or states are looking at for the state parks about how people engage in, in the park system and, and camp there or, or visit there. In the long term, I think there could be things that make us more efficient and increase guest satisfaction that we have to take into account as we go forward. So this is a good opportunity for us to try some new things. We're right now um, concepting out what's, what camping might look like post-pandemic. And we obviously don't know when post is, you know, this could extend for quite a while, but yeah. we do think there'll be changes. And we're trying to understand those right now so we can, you know, be in front of what those improvements might be to our park as a result of this. Yeah, as the saying goes, uh, necessity is the, the mother of invention. Um, have there been any aha moments um, right off the bat? Or again, this is something that'll will come as you move forward and experience the new now. Early on, we made adjustments to check-in procedures, um, and that's always, I think, a pain point for people. How do you make it easy and streamlined for guests to check in? So a year ago, we did a project called Campground of the Future, where we ideated on how technology will advance and potentially change how people camp. And one idea we had is perhaps when you arrive at the campground, you're already geo-detected when you pull in through your RV or your device automatically checked in and, and routed to your site through some form of technology. Now, obviously, we're not doing that now, but uh, we've made steps to change the check-in procedure so people don't have to queue up. You know, a Friday afternoon, you'll see six, seven RVs lined up because people are going into the store to register. So if we can eliminate that pain point of registration, it gets your camping trip off to a great start and eliminate some frustration that might result from that. So as a result of the pandemic, we've had to eliminate people coming into our stores and try to reduce contact. So mm -hmm. there's a variety of technology approaches we're using to get it more streamlined. So when people pull into the campground there, we can get them to their site quickly and easily and minimize their contact with others. I think that's something that will continue to evolve and will stick going forward. And I think that it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. We had a, a story on The Traveler a few weeks back about um, how the National Park Service is is working to conceptualize the 21st century campground in the park system and, and what changes um, that might bring about. And um, certainly something to ease the check-in process, I'm sure, would be welcome there as well. Now, um, you've talked about the 
great increase in the number of campers that you've seen in, in recent years. Politically, I wonder if this brings a new um, lobbying block, so to speak. I mean, there, there's always concern about whether the Land and Water Conservation Fund is going to be adequately funded and, and whether the national park system and, and state parks are going to get the adequate budgets that they need to to really provide a, an optimum experience. A- any idea about that side of the coin? You know, are, are you going to see, are we going to see uh, a stronger political force in, in favor of recreation, outdoor recreation, camping? I hope so. I do think that's been gaining some traction over the past couple of years. Um, and then the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable formed which I think is driving a lot of the work being done in Washington to reach the right decision makers and policymakers to advocate for the outdoors. I think there are many people on the Hill that are impassioned about the outdoors or they're from states that, you know, are working to increase funding for different things in the outdoors. So I do, I think that this will continue. I think everybody right now is pretty focused on getting us through the initial onslaught of the virus. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think over time, we'll see attention start turning towards other things. And, and I hope that the outdoors is one of them. Any idea how the, the delayed start to the camping season is impacting your industry? I mean, an interesting thing is coming to Yellowstone National Park on Monday, where the entrances, the south entrance and the east entrance will open because Wyoming has relaxed its... Uh, um, restrictions on travel, and yet Montana and Idaho, I believe, are, are still pretty locked down to a certain extent. And so while there can be campgrounds on the Wyoming side of the park open, those in West Yellowstone, for instance, um, I don't know how they're going to be impacted if you can't go through the West Gate into Yellowstone. Right. Yeah. Um, overall, the camping industry has been hit pretty hard, just like all of travel. We had a significant number of cancellations, and so most people lost their spring business. Mm-hmm. They're starting to regain summer to some extent based off of the laws, and we're hoping people can have a good kickoff uh, Memorial Day weekend. That'll help with cash flow, but we do still have about 12 states and a number of provinces that leisure camping's not allowed yet, so they won't have a Memorial Day. The park system is really vital to campgrounds. That, you know, I'm based here in Montana, so I've been watching the Yellowstone Park discussion closely myself. Our parks in Montana near the entrances will suffer significantly if, if we don't have park traffic. Similarly, our parks near Glacier, you know, just north mm-hmm. of us, uh, will suffer significantly if, if travel's not allowed to the parks this summer. I understand why it's restricted because we're limiting out-of-state travel right now in the state. Our stay-at-home orders actually lifted a couple of weeks ago, and we've done well in Montana. We have minimal cases, and, and we're faring very well, and I applaud the governor's work there. And I understand that in keeping out-of-state travel restricted, we can continue that. But um, I will say that will have a huge economic impact on our parks, on our campgrounds near the parks. And that, that goes for across the country. Um, we've got campgrounds near every national park or national point of interest. And we're hopeful that those can open so that not only people can enjoy the parks, but that our businesses near those parks can can thrive. Yeah, and when you're talking about a, a tourism industry um, around a national park, they don't always have a lot of margin and they don't always have a lot of uh, reserves to fall back on when something like this hits. Yeah, you know, it's just tough where it's a short season. You know, if we're talking about West Yellowstone as an example, Montana, 
it's about the shortest season in our system. Wow. I mean, they still have snow sometimes right now. So they're get, they're getting started in May, but it, it's very cold May. And they're definitely closing down by Labor Day. So it's such a short season and you have to make as much money as you can within that season um, to survive. And so as much as we cut into those seasons, and that's similar to a lot of our northern parks, it's very seasonal businesses. In the south, we've got parks open all year, but losing the spring is obviously a big hit for, for those parks as well. But these seasonal parks, we need to make sure that they can have as much summer as possible. You know, we're all very cognizant of the fact, though, that we want to be, you know, good partners in our communities and fighting coronavirus. We want to respect people's um, desire to, to engage and to travel. And so we're tiptoeing cautiously. You know, we would love to see parks open. We want to host people when they're ready to travel and when the government feels it's appropriate for them to travel. So it's hard to be really forceful about we need to be open because we want to work very closely with our communities and making sure that it's the right time to do so. Sure, sure. No, I can certainly appreciate that. We've been talking today with Toby O'Rourke, the president and CEO of Campgrounds of America, um, concerning a recent survey they conducted on um, the coronavirus pandemic and how it's impacted the the camping industry and uh, about campers' feelings for how soon they want to get back out into the parks. Toby, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kurt. I appreciate you um, visiting with me this morning. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, Nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. By drips and weeps over thousands, if not millions of years, beauty is created underground. In the subterranean world, moist air and mineral-rich water create castles in the caves of the national park system. There are sparkling white nodules, wafer-thin balloons, mineral straws, and slabs of bacon. Well, at least it looks like bacon. These are the speleothems, the decorations of the underworld. They are fashioned over time by minerals deposited from water droplets dangling from ceilings, splashing to the floor, or simply carried on air currents and accumulated by chance in frost-like forms. Every drip of water you hear today is creating something else. 
Jewel Cave National Monument's Ranger Ken says, just before he turns the lights out on us in one of the chambers along the park's scenic tour. As you look around, you can see the impact of every drip of water. While these creations are lost in the total darkness that is the Norman Caves, they come shimmering to life for us when some light shines on them. When the ranger turns the lights back on, orange, yellow, and white soda straws point down at me from the ceiling. Across the cave, dark brown flowstone coats a rock shelf, appearing like melted chocolate ice cream or icing in search of a cake. Before I joined the 90-minute public cave tour, Mike Wiles, Jewel Cave's resident geologist and master caver, took me along the scenic tour route to better explain the geology and the work being done to protect the cave and its formations. We are inside a geode, Wiles tells me, referring to the spherical rock nodules that, when cracked open, often are filled with colorful crystal displays. And that makes sense. In a passage not far from the target room, the walls are covered with countless nodules of what's called cave popcorn. Geologically speaking, the nodules are coralites formed by the deposition of calcium carbonate. A little further down the path, we encounter a quarter to half-inch thin, 20-foot-long vertical slab of cave bacon. Illuminated from behind, you can see the striking stripes of color that do indeed make this formation resemble an enormous slice of bacon. Two cowboys thought the formations they spied in 1900 through the cave's historic entrance might bring them riches, and filed the jewel tunnel load mining claim. While the calcite creations were not valuable in their own right, the brothers turned the cave into a tourist attraction. They were ahead of their time, though. Tourism of the cave didn't take off as they envisioned. In 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt designated it as a national monument. Soon thereafter, the federal government bought out the brothers and placed Jewel Cave under control of the U.S. Forest Service, which turned it over to the National Park Service in 1933. Across the park system, there are many more caves than you might imagine. From Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico and Timpanogos in Utah, to Sequoia National Park's Crystal Cave in California, and Oregon Caves in, well, Oregon. These voids are vast geology lessons that hold you in wonder of the planet. How did they form? How large are they? Will they collapse on me? Does anything live in these cool, dark places? The answers to these questions can be just as varied and complex as the caves themselves. Though Jewel Cave National Monument and Wind Cave National Park are separated by fewer than 20 miles in South Dakota's Black Hills, to the casual observer they may as well be a thousand miles apart. Jewel Cave practically shimmers with the world's greatest concentration of bright white dog-toothed spar, colorful soda straws, flowstone, and cave bacon. The main speleothems along the natural entrance tour at Wind Cave are potato chip fragile honeycomb joints, known as boxwork, that were created when the surrounding limestone and dolomite weathered away. Nowhere else in the world, it's said, can you find such an assemblage of boxwork. It took tens of millions of years for these two caves to form. They were created not by rushing rivers of surface water that found a crack in the Madison limestone formation found in the Black Hills, but rather by the shifting currents of groundwater that dissolved away the limestone. Wiles tells me that millions of years ago, the cave at times was completely filled with water, and those subterranean currents did the craftwork in forming and fashioning the passageways that we now walk through. 
As the water drained, settling out was calcium carbonate, which creates the wonders that draw hundreds of thousands of visitors to Jewel Cave and Wind Cave each year. As for the differences in the cave's speleothems, Wiles said that likely had to do with the limestone bed at Wind Cave being thinner, sandier, and more fractured than the one in which Jewel Cave formed. I had traveled to South Dakota to explore these two cave systems. Well, as much as I was allowed to and was capable of handling. More physically fit volunteer spelunkers with much more caving experience head down into these systems, usually for four days at a time. They shuffle along on elbows and knees while pushing gear ahead of them, beams from their headlamps bouncing off the rock walls, floors, and ceilings. These are the few who push the length of the caves by finding and measuring new passages. While Jewel Cave is recognized as the world's third longest cave with 202 miles mapped, Wind Cave ranks sixth with just about 150 miles charted. Mark Ohms is a physical scientist at Wind Cave who has spent a fair amount of time underground. He and volunteer cavers constantly are trying to find new passageways that will extend the overall length of Wind Cave. There is a possibility that Wind Cave and Jewel Cave are connected. Wiles says scientists have been able to calculate that there is enough volume for the two caves to be linked together. For years, a German researcher has used ultrasonic anemometers to measure airflows in and out of both Jewel Cave and Wind Cave. With those measurements in physics, the ideal gas law specifically, he calculated the volume of the caves. Those calculations indicate that only about 3% of Jewel Cave's passages have been explored, and only about 10% of Wind Cave. If so, mapping the entire cave won't happen anytime soon, as volunteers manage to extend the cave's length by only about 2-3 to three miles a year, and some passages that allow air to flow would likely be too tight for a crawling human. Though the entrances to Jewel Cave and Wind Cave are only about 18 miles apart as the crow flies, Ohms points out that Wind Cave right now fits under one square mile of land surface, and Jewel Cave covers barely three miles of land surface, so the known passages aren't even close to each other. He adds that to get to the far ends of Wind Cave would take about eight hours of shuffling along, and that in Jewel Cave it would take even longer to get to the end. So, he tells me, more entrances in between the two caves will be needed if cavers will be able to determine the two caves are actually one. While the Lakota tribe considers Wind Cave sacred, there has been no evidence that they ever entered it. Europeans, though, didn't hesitate. In the 1930s, civilian Conservation Corps crews built the elevators down into the cave, installed electricity, and built stairways by draping tire inner tubes filled with concrete over their shoulders and carrying them deep into the cave for pours. It took the crews nine years to complete the work. Both caves offer a variety of tours, although both caves were closed as of mid-May 2020 due to elevator issues in the case of Wind Cave and improved walkways being installed at Jewel Cave. When Wind Cave's cave tours resume, in addition to the natural entrance tour, you can explore other sections via the Garden of Eden tour, recommended for those with little time, the fairgrounds tour, the most strenuous at Wind Cave and showing off the most cave features of all the park's tours, the Candlelight Tour, also strenuous with some off-trail travel limited to visitors eight and older, and the Wild Cave Tour, an adventure for those who don't mind squirming around on hands, elbows, and knees, and are over 16 years old. 
Once Jewel Cave's underground reopens to visitors, the scenic tour is offered year-round. You can also journey into the cave by flickering light on the historic lantern tour, or get a quick sample via the 20-minute discovery tour, which takes you into the target room. So which cave is for you? Both. Because they're so close together and because they offer such different geologic experiences, you'd be disappointed to miss either. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As parks do reopen, if you managed to visit one of them, what did you find? Were there crowds? Were people safely practicing social distancing? Send a note about what you found to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.